This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... We did not foresee the idea that some governments would just give up. The idea that some governments would simply say, I'm not going to try to contain this pandemic. There's no way we get out of this without... I think crashing the global economy is an understatement. If you are the body there to protect public health, you are also the body that is most likely to be scapegoated when everybody is facing a threat like this. Yes, it's a year since COVID-19 went global and we all headed into lockdown. Today, we're going to revisit some eerily prescient interviews we did with health experts one year ago and update them with interviews done this week. We'll ask ourselves, what did we think then? What do we know now? And what have we learned? My first guest is Dr. Suri Moon, co-director of the Global Health Centre at Geneva's Graduate Institute. I've been keeping in touch with Suri throughout the pandemic and so... After 12 solid months of it, I asked her how her year had been. My year. <laughs> I think uh, my year, like many people I know in the, in the public health community, has been uh, a whirlwind. I mean, absolutely insane. And um, I did not foresee the um, duration and the severity, the dramatic measures that would be necessary to even try to get this pandemic under control. I think it's been a a shock for uh, even those of us in the public health community who have worked on outbreaks, who have worked on, you know, infectious diseases and know that yes, in theory, these things can happen, but to really see it happening and to see it happening in your own neighborhood. I mean, this is really, yeah, this is a difference from, from anything that's happened before in, in my, my lifetime. Do you think it's maybe a good thing that none of us knew a year ago what was coming our way? Perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, I think the the other word I would use is is fatigue. Everyday people who are not not in the public health world are fatigued. They're just tired of restrictions and news and you know the variants. And I think uh, everybody who's been working directly on on COVID feels it. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction: you must stay at home. Je demande ce soir rester autant que possible. Liebe Mitbürgerinnen, liebe Mitbürger, das Coronavirus verändert zurzeit das Leben in unserem Land dramatisch. It's fair to say that when we were all told a year ago to stay at home, it was a shock. And many, including me, wondered if it was really necessary. At the time, I talked to Vin Kim Gwen. As a doctor with Médecins Sans Frontières, he has worked on Ebola outbreaks. And he's also co-director with Suri Moon of the Global Health Centre. He did the maths for me about infectious disease outbreaks and soon convinced me the lockdown was unavoidable. All the indications are that this is the only thing we can do to avert catastrophe. It's a simple question of mathematics. So the more you limit contact, the more you decrease transmission exponentially. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128. 256. When you look at numbers like that, and when you think if I see two people, and you can multiply it out for yourself, but you end up with a very different picture. So mathematically, any difference helps. 
But empirically, we do not have evidence for that because it takes two weeks to see a difference because the numbers we have today reflect what happened two weeks ago because it takes two weeks for people to get sick. So I would say we need to hang in and we'll know more next week. But there's there's not much else we can do because to keep going on as we were going on, as, as was realized in Italy, was just catastrophic. It was the scenario of people. I mean, so I, I worked in Ebola epidemics in West Africa. It was that scenario. It was people. It would be people dying in the street at the doors of hospitals. That was what was going to happen. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned, both by the alarming levels of spread and severity, and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. At the eye of the storm was the World Health Organization advising, cajoling, even pleading with governments to take action quickly. When I caught up with the WHO's Dr Margaret Harris one year ago, she tried hard to explain why we had to stay home, while at the same time trying not to raise our hopes that a few weeks of lockdown would solve all our problems. Physical distancing measures are really important. They're an important way of slowing down the spread of the virus and buying time so that you don't get large numbers of people coming into casualty into, into hospital at the same time. But it won't end the outbreak. You really need also very targeted tactics, testing every suspected case. So that's why we keep saying testing, testing, testing. But also, and this is the hard work and the hard yards, finding every person who's been in contact with those people and quarantining them. So that's really, really hard work, but that is what does work. Has it occurred to you at the World Health Organization that the kind of measures you're asking for, particularly that quite extensive, well, very extensive tracing, tracking, quarantine, it's going to be very hard for Western democracies to actually do. So on political acceptability, again, with any infectious disease outbreak, we do say that political engagement is an, is absolutely key to successful control of um, infectious diseases. We also say community engagement. So it's more than just one thing. But indeed, it's hard for people in Europe. They really haven't seen an outbreak like this really for a hundred years. We're looking back to the 1919 pandemic of flu was the last time they had a threat like this going through communities. So this is not in living memory. There are very, very few people alive today who were alive then. What do you think about the fears from some human rights organizations that some governments may introduce really very restrictive measures and very socially invasive measures, and then just keep them. This is always a balance that's got to be kept uppermost. And this is one of the greatest difficulties with public health, because public health is about everybody banding together, doing what's good for the community. But the individual may indeed feel that it's not necessarily good for them. So, in fact, a large part of our work is looking at how you do 
maintain human rights while doing something across a community that's necessary to stop an outbreak. It's a strange feeling listening to that interview now. I knew back then that some of the restrictions being imposed on us were unprecedented and politically sensitive. Now, the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat, as the heat comes in. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. What I didn't know is just how politically difficult this public health crisis would become. Neither, it turns out, did Suri Moon. The degree and the extent to which the response to the pandemic has been politicized, I think, um, has exceeded uh, what I foresaw a year ago. Uh, so in the in the earliest days, of course, this was really framed as a you know a, a U.S. China political battle, and I think that was the case for the first a couple months. But as the virus spread, it quickly became a political battle in every single country in the world, really, you know, between governments and citizens, between left and right, uh, between science lovers and science haters. (laughs) One of of the things that I think we did not foresee really, um, you know, how bad it would get is the idea that some governments would just give up. The idea that some governments would simply say, I'm not going to try to contain this pandemic. And of course, the, you know, the biggest example of that is the United States. I mean, the most well-known example, but we've also seen the same attitude in Brazil, in Mexico, arguably in the UK, that certain political leaders would say the cost of actually trying to contain this epidemic is more than I'm willing to bear. I think that attitude and the strength of that attitude and the duration of that attitude has been something that, you know, in all of the plans for preparedness, you know, what do countries have to do to get ready? None of us thought of that. Everybody predicted, yes, at some point we'll have a pandemic. Lots of challenges, of course, with coordination and information flow and compliance and economic harms and and all of that stuff we knew would happen. But the idea that a political leader would just say, I give up or it's not even worth it. I think that has been something really profoundly consequential and shocking. How do you think the WHO has come out of this so far? I think WHO, I think I think they did fairly well considering the magnitude of the crisis, considering how politicized it was, considering how that their structural limits meaning small, relatively small secretariat, insufficient budget, insufficient flexibility in their funding, and insufficient legal tools in terms of, you know, they don't have the authority or the legal mandate, for example, to conduct an independent investigation in Wuhan um, of the origins of the virus. But I I think we we do see the challenge and one of the biggest weaknesses that is is fundamental to who WHO is, is of course its membership uh, structure, its, its relationship with its own member states. So where has WHO really continued to struggle? I think it is in managing the relationship with China, with the Chinese government in particular. And we see that in the fact that the, the mission indeed to investigate the, the origins of the virus has been delayed for a year. I mean, this is really unimaginable. This, this just doesn't make any sense from a, from a scientific or public health perspective. 
And of course, this is a, a product of a delicate diplomatic dance between WHO and China and, and other governments, you know, other member states who are part of the negotiation of that mission. Um, but it does really highlight where WHO continues to uh, have to walk a very fine line. The world, WHO, World Health got it wrong. I mean, they got it very wrong. In many ways, they were wrong. That's to the World Health Organization. That's not good. Not fair. Not fair at all. Over the course of this pandemic year, we have seen bitter criticism of the WHO from the United States, with Donald Trump announcing the US would leave, taking the $400 million contribution with him. Now, under the new administration of President Biden, the US is back on board. I am honoured to announce that the United States will remain a member of the World Health Organization. But the arguments over the WHO's role, its strengths and weaknesses, and the political pressure on the organization have exposed the difficulties a multilateral body faces trying to deal with a global crisis. A year ago, the WHO's Margaret Harris foresaw stormy waters ahead. There is always that risk, because if you are the body there to protect public health, you are also the body that is most likely to be scapegoated when everybody is facing a threat like this. We, right from the start, had warned very, very loudly. We declared a public health emergency of international concern. Our warnings weren't heard. And honestly, we do understand why, as I said before, many of the countries that are now suffering terrible, terrible outbreaks had no experience of this. The feeling was it happens to someone else somewhere else. Even the, the the first narratives were that, oh, yeah, well, most people have a mild disease. You know, it only affects older people. It's now very clear this is not true. We were saying it was not true, but it's, again, human nature. It is understandable that people didn't realize what a threat it was until it arrived on the doorstep. This is a very, very difficult time. And we are certainly not saying that people should be in lockdown for long term. And why don't you, since since you're at the WHO and you're a doctor, why don't you hazard a, a time frame on that? Because that's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I still haven't found that crystal ball. But we are looking at months because we have very, very large outbreaks. I'm not saying looking at months of people being in lockdown, but I am saying we are looking at months of really before we can feel comfortable that the world has managed to bring this down. Tonight at 10, the current lockdown restrictions in England will remain in place until at least the 8th of March. Protest against a third national lockdown. Not in lockdown for months, said Margaret Harris last year. How many of us so wish she'd been right? Instead, one year on, we're back in lockdown, some of us for the third time. It's having a devastating effect on our economies, our culture, our society, our very way of life. One year ago, Vin Kim Gwen did try to warn me. What I realised in my gut as opposed to cognitively is that there's no way we get out of this without, I think, crashing the global economy is an understatement. I think we're going to have a broad global economic collapse from which we will emerge into a new world order. A new world is being destroyed and reborn in front of our very eyes. And that was the enormity of what I was contemplating last night as I was looking at the curves. 
that's probably a bit hard for a lot of people to hear. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, that's why I had kind of a sleepless night. I mean, if if I were to unpack this more slowly, what we know is that the epidemic, if we fail to contain it, will peak in the next six weeks, six to eight weeks in most places, will cause many, many dead. So you've got this one scenario, which is the short, sharp epidemic. Uh, I think this was the scenario that was briefly envisaged by the British government, where you kind of take your losses, you know, uh, and then you generate herd immunity, although we don't know what kind of immunity this epidemic generates. Everything grinds to a halt for two months, and then it, the machine just starts up again. The mitigation and containment scenarios where you're able to, to flatten the curve or bend the curve so that you have less excess deaths from, because of a health system that can't respond, these all suggest much longer periods of economic and social disruption. Do you think if a politician was to say it, put it the way you just put it now, it's either short, sharp, shot right now, lots of deaths, or it's a long, drawn-out mitigation and the economy crashed. Which do you think people would go for? Which would you go for? I don't know. So when people say I'm a pessimist and I say I'm a realist, it depends on our personal... Uh, I, I think people tend to be optimistic. A friend of mine wrote just this morning, uh, we were chatting, and he wrote something. He said... This is the time to imagine another world. So maybe that's naive and foolish and delusional, or maybe it's the start of something. I, I think it, it's really a fundamentally emotional question. I too worry, I, I think the economic consequences will be disastrous, but maybe, maybe this is the time to imagine something different. So I think the courage that we ask for, of people ha has to be a courage of imagination as well. Will there be airlines in six months or will it all be back to normal? I think it'll be all pretty much back to a new normal. Um, but I don't know what that new is. We have the breaking news that the global death toll from COVID-19 has now passed two million. That is... One year on, that new normal doesn't look very attractive. We're still struggling with COVID-19. Over two million people have lost their lives. Many more have lost their jobs. Families are divided. We can't even plan a coffee with a friend or a holiday with our children. So is there any comfort we can take from the last 12 months? Any lessons we can learn from this difficult, unprecedented year? I asked Suri Moon. Can we take any comfort? <laughs> Um, I think at a, at a broader level, what I, I hope will be one of the, um, the benefits, the unexpected but really critical benefits, is that health will take a higher priority politically. And I think that this pandemic uh, has shown in an undeniable way that it's got to be considered right up there with the economy, with national security. It's got to be seen as something that is absolutely core to societal functioning and societal well-being. Without health, we have nothing else. 
without help, we cannot leave our houses. We can't hug our grandparents or kids. You know, we can't work. We can't have culture or commerce. And this is something that in the health community, we've been, you know, saying, waving the flag about this for years and say, it's as important as nuclear disarmament. It's as important as the unemployment rate. But of course, that's not the way it's understood. So if there's something that gives me optimism is that putting that higher political priority on health as a societal value, right up there with economic growth, for example, um, I do hope and believe that that will lead to better progress for societies in the years to come. And with those closing thoughts, we've reached the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Suri Moon, Vin Kim Gwen and Margaret Harris. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Mm-hmm.